if someone is a what they call a priority patient, that means they're critical. They're either really, really sick or really, really injured, okay? You will reassess every five minutes. If they're stable, whether it's medical, whether it's trauma, they're stable, you reassess every 15, okay? Five or 15. All right, so on scene size up, uh, that is your information gathering stage and it does begin when you get dispatched um, and really should continue till you get back at the station. Continual situational awareness. Uh, always have a high index of suspicion, okay? If it can go wrong for somebody, anticipate that it might. Um, so then you combine that information, you know, information that the dispatch gives you, plus the signs and symptoms that you discover during your assessment, Keep that high index of suspicion, and that's going to help you. Uh, coupling that with your knowledge of the body, the organs, and where they're located in the body and the different body parts, that's going to give you your field impression and uh, pretty much a treatment plan. Okay? Scene size up. Listen to me now. People will run over you. So if you're working anything on the roadway, anywhere near a roadway, you should have those safety vests with that uh, ANSI certified safety vest with a certain amount of reflective material on it because people will run over you. They're busy trying to figure out what's going on and what type of stuff they could see that they really don't want to see and they're not watching where they're driving, okay? Um, I-85 scares me to death. Every time I've ever been on it, working a wreck. Because it was the first time I had to work off a seventy-five, and the whole time I'm over here. God, I'm never, I'm never good. You better. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, was, I had a car fire, so I'm over here trying to. Yeah. Or they're doing like this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Video. Yeah, trying to make sure. Yeah, ain't nothing wrong with that. Run over. <laughs> so watch out for that. You know, not just the other drivers, even though that's your biggest threat anytime you're near a roadway. Uh, what are some other things that are hazards to you if you're working in an automobile accident? Explosions. Yeah, okay. airbags. Airbags. Airbags can deploy at the Gas last tank. minute. Gas tanks, explosion, but what else? Tires. T okay, tires could pop, that's a fact. Electrocution. Because when cars leave roadways, there's okay. power poles on them roadways too, right? Yeah. So, uh, protect yourself, protect the patient. And the slide here says you should protect the bystanders as well. As well. But what's the best way to keep a bystander safe? Get them gone. Get them gone. And who, are you going to stand there and argue with people? No, S-O. Yeah. You shouldn't. That's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. I mean, you can, but, uh, yeah. You, you, that, that you, yeah, you, you could do that. But listen, but, but the thing about that is you're wearing a billboard. You know, you're wearing a uniform. They know exactly who to call and get to get you fired. So. You can think anything you want to, you know. But. All right, so again, law enforcement, get them back. 
you've got a job to do and, and messing with them ain't it. So bystanders need to get going. All right, so continuing with scene size up, you need to determine the mechanism of injury or the nature of illness. The MOI or NOI, okay? Mechanism of injury, how they got injured, what happened, okay? Now obviously, we're talking about trauma patients, mechanisms of injury. Nature of illness would be medical patients, okay? On this particular slide, what do you think the mechanism is? Car wreck. Maybe hit the steering wheel because he was unrestrained. Who knows? Traumatic injuries are the result of physical forces applied to the body, and the injuries are sustained when the body can no longer absorb the energy. And energy likes to travel in a straight line. But we'll get to all that in the trauma chapters. I saw the imprint on the top of the dude's head in the windshield. I think he was not wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to figure out what happened then. Oh, he was all right, so when you're assessing a trauma patient, there's two types of trauma. You have blunt force trauma, which occurs over a broad area, and the skin is typically not broken. What causes the trauma in that top picture, you think? Looks, looks like a seatbelt, don't it? Okay. Then you have penetrating trauma. All right, obviously, the skin's broken at this point. Uh, occurs at specific points of contact between the skin and the object. Penetrating trauma penetrates. Blunt force trauma doesn't. Now, can you have blunt trauma that breaks the skin? Absolutely, you can, but that's not usually the case. Nature of illness, why they're sick. It could be a seizure, heart attack, diabetic uh, problems, poisoning. Again, if they're conscious, it's best described by the patient in their chief complaint and their medical history. And if someone is unconscious, you might have to talk to family, friends, bystanders, someone who has a little bit of knowledge of, of what's going on. So standard precautions, what are we talking about? Scene size up, you take your standard precautions every time without fail. Gloves. As a minimum, right? Yeah. As a minimum. Depending on the, the risk or the potential for exposure, you may need to get your fluid-resistant uh, gown out. You may need to get your goggles with the side splash protection. You may have to have a HEPA respirator, depending on what the, the, the potential exposure risk is. You need to assume that all patients have some sort of infectious disease and you need to take obvious precautions to make sure you don't get sick. Odds are you'll spend an entire career and you'll never catch a disease from a patient. But I didn't say it doesn't happen, right? It happens. So don't be a statistic. It's very easy to prevent. If you wear your PPEs every time, then you ain't got to worry about it, okay? But remember, if it's wet, belongs to somebody else, you don't want it on you. You just don't. All right, so 
finishing up scene size up here, first thing you need to do is determine the number of patients. This is critical in determining the need for additional resources. If you get dispatched to say a MVC or MVA, car wreck, whatever you want to call it, and they tell you that it's a three vehicle collision, what do you know as at a minimum you know something? You, need, you could have at least three critical patients, right? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're all completely uninjured, but remember, it's better to have something in route and not need it than need it and somebody's sitting on the couch watching TV. Get them in route. You can cancel them if you need to. Now, and you should. If you, as soon as you determine you don't need all those resources, you should start demobilizing resources as quickly as you can because they need to be available for that next call. You never know when it's coming in, right? So evaluate your scene, determine the number of patients, see what you need, and, uh, and again, get them in route early and often. Put mass casualty plan into action in case of multiple patients. Mass casualty. A casualty doesn't necessarily mean a death, right? It's an injury as well. So if you have multiple people uh, that, that need help, you need to have multiple resources en route. Depending on how your system runs, you may need a paramedic backup. A lot of services start especially as paramedics. The numbers of paramedics become shorter and shorter and less and less. This paramedic backup or running uh, BLS ambulances and have paramedic intercept uh, is becoming more of a reality. You may need uh, air medical support, helicopter, take them to a, a specialty center like a trauma center or whatever that's further away. Fire departments and law enforcement. All those things are part of scene size up. What's the number one thing you're trying to determine during your scene size up phase? How many patients? Resources needed. Anything dangerous to you? Hazards. Hazards. Is it safe to be there? Safe That's the first thing you're going to figure out. Then all these other things, absolutely. Absolutely. But the first thing you're going to figure out is is the scene safe because as we it, you know as we learn these national registry skills check off sheets and then at the end of this emt class we're going to meet on a saturday morning uh at a local church that, that always lets me use their church that has a bunch of breakout rooms we'll have to show up and have a skills testing day okay for emt as a part of class and i guarantee you if you walk into any one of those skills checkoff stations and you don't start your scene out with, is the scene safe? I got my PPEs on. You're going to fail. You'll fail every station, every time, if you don't say, scene safe, PPEs. That's how you start every station, okay? And if you want to know which ones you'll be tested on as a part of EMT, go to that flash drive, look under EMT, and look on those skills, uh, psychomotor skills checkoff sheets under the EMT tab. Every one of those you need to know, okay? So we'll, we'll cover all of them before we get to that test date. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, that's, that's your checkoff sheet. That's the sheet we'll use to check you off that day. But just so, and I'll bring this right back to you. 
So everyone knows when we do our practical skills examination for EMT, patient assessment medical, patient assessment trauma, back valve mass ventilation of an apneic adult patient, oxygen administration by non-rebreather mask, cardiac arrest with AED, spinal immobilization supine, and then you'll have a random skill station. You will test one of these four. Sp uh, spinal immobilization seated, bleeding control shock management, long bone immobilization, or joint immobilization. So you'll have a total of seven testing stations that day. It ain't bad at all. I think it's the written test. Listen to me. I've been in this field since January 4th, 1991, okay? I know of nobody who couldn't become an EMT because they couldn't pass these skills. I literally, I know people who've had to retest because they got nervous and made a mistake, but I know of nobody who wasn't able to pass the, the psychomotor skills. There's a bunch of folks that, that struggle with that test on the computer. So just, I'm telling you, don't, don't even sweat this. This is just a thing. Print those sheets out and learn them. I'm sweating. No. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best test taker, so I'm worried about that too. Yeah. Don't worry about none of it. If you do what I ask you to do, you're going to be fine. Promise you. I guarantee that you off the pass. Practical so easy because we're tactile creatures we like to touch things and do things and to read something listen the human animal learns about 10% of what they read they learn about 20% of what they read and write they say you learn and retain 50 to 60% of what you read write and do so there's your key read it write it do it and you have to do something at least 50 times to get to the mastery stage, they say. Is that why we had to write those penalties in elementary school? I will not talk during class yeah. 50 times in order for us to If they told you 50, that, that, that's, that's, that's probably why they said 50 times, yeah. So. All right, so listen, make sure everybody's clear. For now, we will do that. We will do that. I'm not even going to guess on the date at this point, but quick as we can, we're going to do them. But we'll cover the sheets before then, but I want you to go ahead and print out your patient assessment medical, patient assessment trauma, and start learning those sheets. All right. So your primary survey, what did I say your goal was in your primary survey? It's your immediate life threats. Finding what's going to kill them right now. Okay. Could be the scene too. Could be. Could be. Could be. Now here's here's the crazy thing about it. If it's a hazardous material or something to where the scene is not safe, listen to me. This is gonna sound cold hearted, but if you come up on a some an industry, okay, and you hear a building full of people in there screaming for their lives because of a chemical spill and you're not equipped or trained to handle that chemical, what will you do? Recover the patient. Somebody's 
If you go in, you'll be another patient. That's right. So you're not going to go in. Someone who was trained and equipped to mitigate that scene is going to come in first, and then unfortunately, y'all will go pick up the bodies later on. That's just reality. So. Also, what I was referring to is if the scene becomes unsafe after you've already started. Unass. Yeah, exactly. If it's unsafe, you need to unass the area. Get out. All right. So your primary survey, though, that's the scene safety, the scene size up. And again, very, very, very important. The goal of your primary survey is to identify and initiate treatments of the immediate or imminent life threats. And those will always center or be associated with airway, breathing, and circulation. You assess an airway. If something's wrong with it, you fix it, right? You fix it before you go to breathing. And then if something's wrong with breathing, you fix it. And you fix it before you go to circulation. So what if you have a patient with a foreign body airway obstruction and you just can't get it out? Well, you try to get it out. But what if you're not having any luck? Keep trying. Continue, continue keep, trying. Keep, on trying. keep on trying. Well, hopefully you got multiple people. Yeah. Yeah. But still in all, the point is, until you get the airway clear and patent, you're not worrying about assessing breathing because it, it doesn't matter. And when, it, do you the huh? when do you transport the patient? When? Yeah, like well, if you're having trouble securing the airway as quickly as you can. And listen, and everybody write this down, because this is a mistake that's made over and over and over and over and over again in EMS. And I made it myself. I throw the first rocket myself when I was riding on the ambulance. If you have a priority patient or somebody that's critical or, or unstable, whatever verbiage you want to use, from the time you get on scene, within 10 minutes, you need to be heading to the hospital. 10 minute on scene time for critical patients. You don't sit on the side of the driveway starting IVs. That, that's the mistake I made a bunch. Because it's just so much easier to do the IV if you're not bumping down the road, right? Critical or unstable patients, you are off the scene in 10 minutes. So if you couldn't get that airway clear, you're going to haul freight and can continue. Trying. Absolutely. Okay. Keep trying That's all of it. That's what I was asking. Do we yeah. sit there and keep trying or do we transport them? And Load and go. Trying? Load and go and keep trying on the way. All right. So, uh, we're going to identify and, and initiate treatment for those immediate life threats. Vital signs are used to evaluate the patient's condition. When I say vital signs, what are the vital signs that we typically try to get in pre-hospital world? Uh, be BP, Blood pressure. With the pulse ox, you're going to get the uh, SpO2, the heart rate, the respiratory rate. So you said blood pressure, pulse oximetry, uh, pulse rate, respiratory rate. What else? Do you, well, when you're also going to get, well, I guess I'm really vital signs. But I was going to say the alert volume, really blood, blood glucose levels. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're going to look at the pupils. And BS. 
It's usually just BS, but in this case, it's breath sounds. You're going to listen to the air going in out of their lungs, okay? Can anybody think of anything else we need to do? Or assess? And we'll talk, we'll figure out how to do all of these. Level of consciousness. Okay. You're going to determine the level of consciousness right off the bat, right? Yeah. Um, and even though some of these may not be your technical vital signs that, that are listed, you're usually looking at the pulse rate, respiratory rate, the BP, uh, whatever, but uh, uh, all these things are important. You should assess these on every patient, okay? Uh, follow your protocols with the with the blood glucose readings. Some of them may or may not want you to take it on a patient if they're not diabetic, but whatever, okay? But your primary survey, you, you, and again, you wouldn't necessarily do these in the primary survey. Primary survey is A, B, C, right? Any questions about that? What will you do before you finish the primary survey? You're going to LOC, and that's about it, right? Scene safe, LOC, determining your resources, things of that nature. But once you start assessing the patient's primary survey first, because that's what's going to kill them right now. Form your general impression as you walk up. Looks like a male in his 30s appears to be unconscious. Sir, sir, are you okay? You know, or elderly female is fallen. I see a rug that's wadded up at her feet. Obvious trip, okay? whatever the case may be. Form your general impression. And listen to me, sick folks look sick. Sick folks look sick. You'll know it. Um, it doesn't mean that they can't deteriorate after you get there, but there's no mistake. And if someone's really needing your help, you're gonna know it as soon as you walk in the room and see them, okay? I'm not saying don't treat the other ones correctly. If you walk in and you're thinking, man, they look pretty stable, you're gonna treat them appropriately as well, right? So don't, <laughs> don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, note the patient's appearance and their position. Does the patient appear to have any life-threatening conditions? Do you see any uh, heavy bleeding going on? Do they look like they're breathing? Do they look like they're conscious or unconscious? Was the patient injured? If so, how were they injured? the mechanism of injury. Does the patient seem coherent and able to answer questions? And I used this little phrase a little while ago, but maintain a high index of suspicion and begin treatment. Just be prepared for the worst and hope for the best scenario, you know? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe the patient's not gonna be that bad. But if you're anticipating the patient to be bad, then you'll be ready to act when and if the scenario presents itself. And listen to me, it's got nothing to do with the real world, but when it comes to this testing, okay, National Registry testing, you need to be in the mindset that every patient is critical when you're answering the questions on the test and when you're doing the psychomotor skills test. Every patient is critical. National Registry doesn't really care how you treat somebody who stubbed their toe. They don't. 
but they want to know that you know how to act and to behave when you're standing between somebody in that grave, okay? So just remember, when it comes to testing, every patient is critical. All right, so we're gonna assess the airway. Um, determine if the airway is open and adequate. Are they responsive? A responsive patient who cannot speak or cry most likely has a severe airway obstruction. Remember, air's gotta pass over those vocal cords for people to speak or to make sound. If they're, if they're open, they may be doing that old universal sign that we talked about Saturday with their hands on their neck. They're not making any noise, maybe starting to turn blue. Well, now that is a significant airway obstruction which needs to be fixed, right? Abdominal thrust. What happens if you do an abdominal thrust and the object doesn't come out and they go unconscious? CPR, CPR, CPR. Call for help, right? And then start CPR with that one major difference. What do you, what's different about the CPR if, if they have a foreign body airway obstruction? You want to visualize the airway before you ventilate every time. That's correct, all right? Unresponsive patients should be considered to have uh, experienced a, a traumatic event. I know I've already told you guys that there's two types of patients, right? You've got medical patients, nature of illness, and then you have trauma patients, mechanism of injury, right? You protect the spine for the injured patients, the trauma patients. What if you don't know? They're just unconscious and you don't know why. Treat them as trauma. That's right. Because and it goes back to that same old stale old stuff I tell y'all all the time. You can always explain why you did something, right? Well, I wasn't sure, so I protected his spine. Even if he's not injured, what have you hurt? Nothing. But if you don't know and you don't do nothing to protect the spine and he has a C2 fracture, now it, that's going to be hard to explain, right? You can't explain why you did nothing. You can always explain why you did something. All right. So, again, if you're not sure or even if you do know that they are injured, jaw thrust maneuver is how you open the airway. If they're unconscious, in the supine position, the muscles in the back of the throat are going to relax. The base of the tongue is going to at least partially block the airway. Yes, sir. Have you, have you ever had to do that? Do what? Uh, jaw thrust. Oh, yeah. Bunch of times. Was that on the EMS side or the fire side? Yes. Yes. No, I was just asking, like, were you on, like, a fire truck or were you actually on an ambulance when you done that? Both. Okay. I mean, but I've done it a bunch of times. So, listen to me. The, the apparatus you rode to the scene on should make zero difference in how you treat a patient. I think I know where you're going with your question. I was wondering, in your, your fire career, have you ever done that? Yes, a bunch of times. So, jaw thrust maneuver to open the airway of an injured patient. Relaxation of the tongue, dentures, blood clots. And I think I asked this question the other day. Dentures, false teeth, do you leave them in or take them out? If they're in place and not loose, leave them in. If they're loose, they're causing an airway, potential airway problem, take them out. 
but when you take them out, the facial structure changes, right? And it might be harder to get a seal for on a bag valve mask. So just kind of keep that in mind. Man, what song was that? <laughs> she don't want to talk about it. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So we've secured the airway. And, and again, right now we're just talking about the head tilt chin lift for medical. We're talking about the modified jaw thrust for the trauma patients. Um, we will here pretty soon talk about airway adjuncts. Once you open the airway, you don't have to sit there and just do nothing but hold that airway forever. There's a device you can put in either an oral pharyngeal airway or nasal pharyngeal airway depending on the patient and then you don't have to sit there and hold that airway anymore it is protected at that point so once you've secured the airway now you're going to assess the breathing does the patient appear to be choking maybe not making sound what if they're coughing they say they got something in their throat but they're coughing what do you do Encourage them to keep coughing, right? But keep your hands off of them for now. All right, so do they appear to be choking? If not, are they breathing? Are they breathing too fast or are they breathing too slow? Uh, what's the normal respiratory rate range for an adult? 12 to 20. 12 to 20. What about a child? That's an infant. 25 to 50, right? Well, what'd you say? No, no, I, I, I didn't hear right. 12 to 20, 15 to 30, 25 to 50. Adult, child, infant. 12 to 20, 15 to 30, 25 to 50. You need to know that like the back of your hand. And again, why is it so important to know what normal is? is, is 25 to 50. It is, it's normal. You, get, you basically got to have a, like a, something to go off of, but yeah. even, though, even though it's normal, it may not be normal. Yeah, but if you don't know what normal is, you, can't even judge what's, you, 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 ain't, you ain't got a clue in figuring out what's abnormal, right? And we, we, we deal with abnormal. That's what we do. We try to help fix abnormal. So are they breathing too fast or too slow? So if someone, uh, an adult patient that's breathing, I don't know, let's just say, six times a minute, four times a minute. Is that bad? Yes, yes. less than eight ventilate. Less than eight, ventilate, that's right. If they're breathing less than eight times a minute, you should ventilate and assist their breathing. So look on the other side. Let's say they're breathing 35, 40 times a minute. Man, they're getting a lot of extra air then, ain't they? Assist them with down. You need to do a little bit more. If someone's breathing over 30 times a minute, you need to ventilate them also. Now, does that even make sense? So why would I tell you something goofy like that? They're breathing 30, 35 times a minute. I'm telling you, you need to ventilate them too. Because probably the breaths that they're taking probably aren't really adequate, adequate breathing. Well, breaths, so you probably need something to help. Shallow, shallow respirations. The tidal volume's messed up. They're breathing so fast, they don't have time to fully expand their chest wall to pull in that 500 cc's. 
So over 30, you're going to ventilate them too. And listen to me. If registry gives you a question, and the question could be that long, if they say shallow respirations, or if they say patients confused, or anything that indicates to you that they're not adequately breathing, it doesn't matter you're ventilating that patient. The answer is going to be the one that has a bag valve mask in it, okay? I promise you. Every day of the week, twice on Sunday. So are they breathing too fast or are they breathing too slow? Are the patient's respiration shallow or deep? Shallow, inadequate. Deep, adequate. Is the patient cyanotic? Listen to me. If they're starting to turn blue around the lips or the earlobes, it's not adequate, right? You're going to ventilate them too with supplemental oxygen attached. Do you hear abnormal breath sounds when listening to the lungs? When you take that stethoscope and you auscultate breath sounds or you listen to the breath sounds, you're going to listen right here, you're going to listen right here, you're going to listen down here, you're going to listen down here. Some people prefer listening on the back. It's style points. Whatever you do, whatever you or best at, I guess. Some people listen under the arm on the side of the chest. Whatever, wherever you can hear. And you have to change it up sometimes just depending on the patient, you know. But um, you should hear nothing but air in, coming in and air going out. And again, if you don't practice hearing what that normally sounds like, again, you won't recognize abnormal. So I'm telling you starting tonight, if you don't have a stethoscope if you don't have a BP cuff go on to a pharmacy you can get you one for $15-20 dollars. it has both of them in there or you can use these in here during the break or you get it a little bit early or or stay a little bit late whatever you want to do you need to practice listening to air going in and out of the lungs you, you need to be practicing these skills because that's the only way you get good at anything is by doing it but when you're auscultating the breath sounds you should hear nothing but air going in, air going out. And it should sound the same on the left side as it sounds on the right side. And it should sound the same on the top as it does on the bottom. And if all of that is present and it's all the same, you normally document that as bilateral breast sounds because that's on both sides of midline, right? It's bilateral. Bilateral breast sounds are clear and equal or some people will say BBS clear slash equal sign, whatever. The thing about your documentation is that's for you to read three years later when that person sues, right? So, uh, but that's what you want. You want your bilateral breath sounds to be clear and equal. Uh, if you, but there's different little sounds that you may hear called adventitious airway sounds. You can go to YouTube and listen to them. If you hear like a little crackling sound in the lower lobes, that means they've got a little bit of fluid in their lungs, okay? Or those are called rails or crackles. If you hear, you've heard these people before, you walk in a the room, they're coughing and you just hear junk moving in their chest, a real heavy fluid sound. That's called ronchi. That's a lot of fluid in the lungs. You normally don't even have to have a stethoscope to hear that. Okay, uh, you may hear wheezing, especially when they exhale if they're an asthma patient. 
So those are the adventitious airway sounds. Snoring, that means the tongue's in the airway. Gurgling, that means fluids in the airway. Those are those abnormal sounds. All right. Each complete breath includes inspiration and expiration. They breathe in, they breathe out, okay? Um, you need to determine if the rate is normal, fast, or slow. What's the medical term for slow breathing? What's the medical prefix for slow? No, not low or insufficient, slow. Brady. Brady is slow. What's the root word for breathing? Pronounce it any way you want to, but it's P-N-E-A. Pena or Pena or whatever. So Brady Pena is slow breathing. Fast breathing is what? Tacky. Of course, you kind of run that one together and say tachypnea. You know, or, or tachypnea, just depending on how southern you want to be, I guess. I don't know. Um, what if they're not breathing at all? Medical prefix A or AN means without. Apnea, it's not breathing at all. They stop breathing in their sleep. So what's this one mean? Eupnea. E-U-P-N-E-A. Eupnea. Do me a favor. Next time y'all run a medical call and, um, you know, Spalding EMS is on the way, right? And you're on the scene. If you get on the scene and the patient is breathing normally, have, then they have good and normal respirations. Get on the radio and say, be advised, the patient presents with eupnea. Yeah. And you say, Chief, that's good and normal breathing. And I can't say, help it that you don't know your terminology. And, and but I don't say gonna, that. What he's going to say is, you're on the fire side right now. No. Them fire guys are providing good quality medical care. That's what the fire guys are doing. All right. So, bradypenia, tachypnea, apnea, eupnea. All those things. And it just changes by adding a different prefix, right? Eupnic respirations, you can even try that, whatever. So you gotta assess the breathing. Is it normal, is it fast, is it slow? The depth, is it shallow or deep? Shallow, bad, ventilate, deep, good. Maybe put on non-rebreather or whatever. And get your mind wrapped around this now. In the real world, if you put a non-rebreather on anybody hardly anymore, first thing the paramedic's gonna do when they get there is they're gonna take it off and put them on nasal cannula, okay? Let them do it. It doesn't matter. You got to have your mind prepared for this EMT test. And this EMT curriculum says the only person that you will put on a nasal cannula is those that can't tolerate a mask. 
That's what the EMT curriculum says. So for taking your test, don't confuse the real world, okay? You give non-rebreathing masks unless they can't tolerate it. That's not real world, I know that, but just understand the difference. Uh, chest rises, equal or unequal. When someone breathes, the right side of their chest should rise just like the left side, right? And it should fall the same as the left side. That's, that's equal chest rise and fall. All these things are assessing the breathing. Um, how much effort, listen, breathing should be an effortless thing, you know. You should do it really without even thinking about it. So if someone has labored respirations, again, their, their position's gonna tell you that. If, and, it, and just understand this, if the harder it is for someone to breathe, the further up they'll be sitting when you get there. Maybe even leaning slightly forward with their hands on their knees. The tripod position is what that's called. If you see someone in the tripod position, sitting straight up, hands on the knees, head, neck thrust forward, you see the, the nasal flaring, you see use of accessory muscles in the neck, you see retractions. Do we know what retractions are? That's when the skin sinks in. They're working so hard to breathe and they're fighting to get that breath so hard that when they breathe in, the skin sinks in above their collarbones. Those are called supraclavicular retractions. But if you just know retractions, you know what we're talking about. These people, that paints a picture of somebody struggling, right? And then if you ask them, hey, what's going on, buddy? I can't breathe. That tells you something, right? Now, you know what that person needs right off the bat, right? They need some oxygen. You're probably even gonna have to ventilate them because that's real close to respiratory failure at that point, right? When they start speaking in those two to three word sentences. Now, you show up, somebody's laying flat on their back, smoking a cigarette, and they take 30 minutes to tell you how they can't breathe. Well, they're breathing. Well, they're breathing now, but hear me, I'm not telling you not to treat that person. You treat them. You treat them. You can always explain why you did something, right? So and it's all documented, but it's all in the documentation. So. All right. So question. Okay. Panic attacks. Okay. I get like that when I have my panic attacks. You know. Okay. <laughs> Give them oxygen. Give them oxygen. You know they they tell you. They used to say, breathe in this paper bag, right? Yeah. But why do we not do that? Huh? Limits oxygen. And it also increases what? What do you exhale? Carbon dioxide. So if you're breathing to a paper bag, then what are you breathing back in? What triggers you to take the next breath? Carbon dioxide. Give a non-rebreathing mass oxygen and talk them to it. Labored breathing is characterized by a patient's position, concentration on breathing, and increased effort and depth of each breath. Again, if someone, all right, so that's tripod position right there on the, on the right, and that's the sniffing position. And, you know, younger kids and infants, uh, you may, may see that more commonly. A's done and fixed, B's done and fixed, assess circulation, ABCs. Pulse, a pulse is a pressure wave that occurs as each ventricular contraction 
causes a surge of blood circulating through the arteries. If someone is conscious, where will you assess a pulse? The radial pulse, right there at the base of the thumb, right? And again, you're using the pads of your two fingers, not the tips of your fingers. Use the pads and you're gonna feel. And if you feel that pulse, that means they have a systolic blood pressure of at least 80 millimeters of mercury. In other words, the blood pressure is adequate to sustain life, at least for right now. Well, that might change five minutes from now. But you, if they're conscious, you assess a, a um, radial pulse. If they're unconscious, where do you assess a pulse? The carotid. What if it's an infant? Where do you assess a pulse? Break you. Right. Again, these pulse points that were common pulse points that you hear about, obviously your carotid pulse, your, your radial pulse, your brachial pulses, right on the foot, straight up from the big toe, is the, it's called the dorsalis pedis pulse. If you feel behind the, the medial ankle, it's the uh, posterior tibial pulse. That one's not as common as the dorsalis pedis. But all these places, that, these pulse points that we have and places where we assess a pulse, it's where obviously an artery runs over a bone close to the surface of the skin. That's why you can actually feel it. Because arteries usually are deeper than veins, right? So, any questions about any of that? No? Alright. This unit is still going. All right, so uh, assess pulse to determine if, if it's present or absent, uh, whether it's normal, fast, or slow, weak and thready. That should be thready with a Y, okay? Or strong and bounding. So what's the normal resting heart rate for an adult? That's compressions and CPR. Yeah, sixty to hundred beats per minute is the normal resting pulse rate for an adult. Okay? Anything less than sixty is medically referred to as what's the medical prefix for slow? Something right? right? Yeah. Bradycardia. If they're breathing too slow, bradypenia. If their heart's beating too slow, bradycardia. If they're beating over 100 times a minute, that's called what? Tachycardia. Yeah. I don't know how to spell either, so it looks good. Yeah, Brady, Now, if someone, if a pulse is said to be thready, okay, that means you go to assess a pulse and you feel it, and it's pretty fast, but it's kind of real weak. You can, you can feel it, but you can barely feel it. That's thready is how that's described, or weak. Boy, sometimes you, you lay your finger on there and it's that bounding. It's so strong, I mean, it, it literally picks your fingers up a little bit, you know. That's bounding, thready, uh, strong, weak. That's what that means. 
Right? Like we've already said in children younger than one year of age, you palpate a brachial pulse. If you cannot palpate a pulse and an unresponsive patient begins CPR, you should feel for the pulse for how long? At least no more than 10. Five to 10, yeah. And if the patient has a pulse but is not breathing, you provide rescue breaths, right? If it's a pediatric patient, you'll deliver ventilation once every three to five seconds. If it's an adult, once every five to six. They checked her pulse behind her knee. I guess as in an infant, that would be a verse. Yeah. It's, as long as they feel the pulsations, it's just as accurate as it would be anywhere. I don't know why they didn't try a brachial, though. She was blue, so I don't know. Well, they knew something was wrong then, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So... Under circulation is assessment of the skin as well, okay? And why is that? If, if To begin with, and I know I'm somewhat bouncing around, but why do we take a blood pressure in the first place? What are we trying to figure out? To determine basically if the patient's normal or abnormal. If what is normal or abnormal? If blood flow and blood flow supposedly has oxygen in it, right? So we're, we're, we're trying to figure out how well they are perfusing, right? Um, with or without a BP cuff, with or without anything, you walk, as soon as you're in the presence of your patient, you can tell if they're perfusing right or not, just like that, by looking at their skin, right? If someone is adequately perfusing, their skin Listen, I ain't met a pink person yet. I just haven't. And I know that's why they want to describe, I mean, we're, we're white, we're black, we're brown, we're whatever, but I ain't met a damn pink person yet. So just what appears to be of normal color. And if you're not sure and there's family members around, what can you do? You can ask them, hey, does their skin normally look like this? If they are of normal color for them, warm and dry, they are perfusing properly. And it doesn't matter what their normal color is, if they're not perfusing properly, it's gonna be pale, cool, and diaphoretic. Diaphoresis is a medical term for sweating, okay? So if they're perfusing properly, they'll be of normal color, warm and dry. If they're not perfusing properly, there may be, no matter where the problem is in the body, or no matter what link in that chain we call the FIC principle, no matter which link is broken, they will be pale, cool, and diaphoretic. And that's pale for them, okay, whatever that is. It's diaphoretic, sweaty. Sweaty, yeah. Um, but, and here's why, you know, uh, homeostasis, the body's ability to compensate, uh, if there's a problem getting oxygen to all the places it needs to be. The body instantly restricts blood flow to the skin. It shunts the blood away from the skin and redirects it and pulls it to the vital organs. Because the body, you know, those chemoreceptors and, and baroreceptors that determine a problem, they shunt blood away from the skin by closing the pre and post capillary sphincters and pull the oxygenated blood 
to the vital organs. Life over limb mentality, so to speak, right? So this, when that blood is removed from the skin, that's when it becomes pale for them, cool and diaphoretic. That makes sense? So you know right off the bat, as soon as you see them, whether, whether they got adequate blood flow or not, because the skin is the first place to lose the blood flow, and the body does that to itself. Is that clear? All right, good deal. All right, so circulation, inadequate. What do you see around the baby's face there? A little bit of cyanosis, right? Uh, inadequate peripheral circulation will change the appearance of the skin. Cyanosis is when the skin appears to be blue or bluish gray. Um, of course, now liver dysfunction is going to cause them to be jaundiced, which means their skin and the whites of their eyes will be yellow. Also, there's two different types of cyanosis. You have acrocyanosis, A-C-R-O, acrocyanosis, and that's when they're cyanotic in their hands and feet or in the extremities. Central cyanosis being on the chest wall and the abdomen is something different, and that's even a little more ominous. Central cyanosis and acrocyanosis. You need to know the difference between those two. Skin temperature. Abnormal skin temperatures are hot, cool, cold, and clammy. All those are abnormal. And you know instantly if you have any, well, if you have three of the four there, blood's not flowing, right? The skin should be warm and dry. Now, common sense. Anytime you remove common sense from a scenario, you're backing up, right? If you have somebody that is having, let's say, chest pains and they call 911, they've been out in the yard in July pu pushing a push mower. It's normal for them to be sweaty, right? There's a, a whole world of difference between that and the, the person that calls you at 2 o'clock in the morning because everything happens at 2 o'clock in the morning. They were laying in their bed, asleep, air conditioned, so cold in there you could hang meat, and they're sitting there pouring sweat in the air conditioning. That paints a different picture. That's true diaphoresis, okay? So skin that is wet or moist from sweat or excessively dry and hot suggests a problem. When skin is bathed in sweat, the skin is uh, described as wet or diaphoretic. All right, so CRT, capillary refill time. That's a little assessment tool that you can do by taking the patient's finger, and you can do it on yourself. Take it and kind of mash the nail bed and kind of hold it for a second. And then when you let go, you see that the nail bed, which is normally pink in color, when you let go, it it's, looks a little pale or a little white, and then a couple seconds later, the pink comes back, okay? That's capillary refill test. If they have adequate blood flow, you squeeze that when you let go, the pink should return within about two seconds or less. But if it takes more than two seconds for that white to change back to pink, that's an indicator of possible problems with blood flow, 
okay? And that, then you would describe that as capillary refill test is delayed, okay? CRT is delayed, or CRT greater sign two. Style points, you'll figure out how you wanna do it yourself. Uh, that's most accurate now, most accurate on kids. It's more accurate, I should say, on kids than it is adults. But you could do it for any, any age patient. Capillary refill test, capillary refill time, CRT. All right, and the last part of your uh, circulation is to identify and address uh, or control any external bleeding. Now, when you approach somebody, um, you know, I told you nothing gets in the way of your ABCs and it's always in that order, right? Airway, something's wrong with it, you fix it before you go to breathing. If something's wrong with it, you fix it before you go to circulation. But what if you come up on a patient and they are bleeding very heavily? Mm. Well, I mean, you got to stop bleeding. You're right. You need, you know, there's, there's, there's no sense you know, in trying to clear the airway if there's no blood to pump through it. Okay. But what I'm telling you, what you need to know for the test is, and, and, and you do it in the real world, if you came up to somebody and they're pouring blood out of a wound, what are you going to do right off the bat? Gloved hand on that to control the bleeding, listen to me, while you secure airway and breathing. Then when you get to see circulation, that's when you would put a bandage or a dressing on that wound. Gloved hand, bam, because you're right. If they bleed out, it don't matter. Airway, breathing. In the real world, hopefully, you're doing the airway breathing, your partner's controlling the bleed. But for your testing, for testing purposes, gloved hand, while you secure airway breathing and then you dress that and bandage that during the seat. Does that make sense? All right. Direct pressure, elevation. And if direct pressure and elevation doesn't stop bleeding, what's the next thing you do? Tourniquet. What did you say? If direct pressure and elevation okay. doesn't stop bleeding, yeah. tourniquet. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, if there's no CPR, if there's no pulse, you start CPR. All right, assessing for disabilities. Um, basically, their level of consciousness, LOC. Are they unresponsive or responsive with an altered LOC, an LOC's level of consciousness? Uh, you need to determine the patient's normal mental status. Uh, and they should have pointed out, and they may here in a minute, but I'm going to do it now. How do you assess someone's level of consciousness? You want someone put to be C-A-N-O times four. That's what you want. You want them to be conscious, alert, and oriented times four. So when you're assessing for this disability or, or their level of consciousness, if you walk in the room 
and their eyes are open. If they're looking at you, is one thing, but I mean, if, you, if they're just Turn like, if their eyes are open, and like, I'm saying, if they're, if they're setting up and their eyes are open, then, then they are conscious and alert. Alert means their eyes are open, not necessarily oriented, though, right? Yeah. See, I'm saying people are like, their eyes were open, and they're wide they, open, they yeah. didn't say nothing. And they, they don't know. So their their eyes are open. Technically, they're alert, but they're not oriented. They, they don't know what's going on, okay? Lights are on, but nobody's at home, right? Yeah. So, and then I'm going to write this other one on here, AVPU, okay? Conscious alert oriented times four. Uh, if you walk in, their eyes are open, and you're talking to them, and then they can answer four questions. And listen to me. Don't even get into this mess you hear a lot of medics do. Well, who's the president or who's the – you don't even want to get into those type of damn conversations, all right? There's four questions you're going to ask. Person, place, time, and event. Hey, what's your name? Most folks, if if unless they're kicked out of gear idling, right, they're gonna be able to say, "Well, my name's Jeff Tenney." Well, Jeff, do you know where you're at? Yeah, I'm at my house, sixteen thirty-five Moore Road. Okay. Do you know what that? You know what time it is. You know, people are gonna listen. Ask them what day of the week it is. Yeah. Most folks know the day of the week. And then event. What happened? And if I can answer all those questions, what's in a logical fashion, then I'm conscious, alert, and oriented times four. What if I know who I am, where I'm at, and the day of the week, but I ain't got a clue what happened? Times three. What if I know who I am and where I'm at, but I ain't got a clue of the day of the week? Times two. Times two. All right? Conscious, alert, and oriented times four. Person, place, time, and event. Now, AVPU. That's alert. Trust me, that says unresponsive. <laughs> you walk in a room, somebody's eyes are open, they're alert. If you walk in a room, their eyes are closed, and you say, Sir, what's going on? Are you okay? And they open their eyes. Then they are alert to voice. If you walk in a the room, their eyes are closed, and you say, Sir, sir, are you okay? And he doesn't respond, but then you take them knuckles right there and do a little sternum rub back and forth some, some books say pinch the earlobe whatever you would you elicit or try to elicit a pain response and then they open their eyes to the pain then they are alert to pain but if you walk in eyes are closed sir sir are you okay nothing you do a sternum rub pinch the earlobe no response they are unresponsive so avpu means they're alert alert to voice, alert to painful stimuli, unresponsive, okay? And C-A-N-O times four, it's conscious, alert, and oriented because they know person, place, time, and event questions. These are the tools that you're gonna use to determine their level of disability. 
when you're looking for spinal immobilization, any mechanism of injury that indicates the potential for spinal injury. Listen to me, right now, if, if it's a trauma scenario, they are injured. That's what you need to know, and you need to protect their spine. Now, I understand that's not gonna be reality sometimes, but as far as you're concerned, right now, if they're either medical or trauma, and trauma gets immobilized, okay? Now, you're gonna follow your protocols at work, but. Uh, pain or tenderness in the neck or spine would be an indication for immobilization. Paralysis or neurologic complaint. Maybe they can't move their legs. Maybe they can't feel their legs. Male patients may have a priapism. What is that? A priapism. P-R-I-A-P-I-S-M. That is an erection that's caused by a spinal cord injury. They need to be immobilized. Altered mental status, difficulty or inability to communicate, confusion, all this secondary to some sort of traumatic event, you need to protect their spine, okay? And here we go, there's AVPU. AVPU scale tests the patient's responsive level. Awake and alert, responsive to verbal stimuli, response, responsive to pain, or unresponsive, AVPU. All right, so somebody look in the book and find the Glasgow Coma Scale. The, the Glasgow, Glass Glasgow, whatever you want to pronounce it. The GCS. Just, yeah, just look at it. Let me see if it's the next slide. No. All right, so the GCS affixes a score. You're, you're scoring three different things with the patient, right? You're looking at eyes, verbal, and motor function, right? Does the eyes, does that look familiar to you? Alert, alert to voice, alert to pain, and that means they never open their eyes, right? And you see a numerical value beside each one of those. Verbal. What, what are the different categories in verbal? It says oriented conversation, confused conversation, words, sounds, none. And there's, again, numerical value there. And again, we're rating someone's level of disability. Eyes, verbal, and motor. What are the, what are the categories that you're going to uh, affix a score uh, on the on the motor functions. Ways commands, localizes pain and pressure, normal, uh, flexion, abnormal flexion, extension. All right, did I ain't being funny? Did you skip one? Localizes pain, and what's after localizes pain? Withdrawals from pain's not on there. No. Well, then that's a change. All right, so localizes pain, what does that mean? To begin with, if you say, sir, can you squeeze both of my hands? And they reach up and grab both of your hands and squeeze. That obeys commands, right? Seems normal. Localizes pain. If they're unresponsive, they, don't, they didn't open their eyes, so you do a sternum rub, and they reach up and grab your hand. That tells you that they know where they're hurting because they were able to grab your hand. Now, if you see withdrawals from pain, 
that's a little bit worse than localizes pain would have a would have a smaller score that means you do a sternum rub or whatever they can't figure out exactly where they hurt but they try to roll away from you they don't know exactly where they're hurting but they're withdrawing from the pain does that make sense and then the extension and flexion were those the next two Abnormal flexion, that's posturing. Decorticate posturing is when their hands are pulled up in their chest and their feet both look like they're pushing gas pedals. That's decorticate posturing, usually indicative of something, build up a pressure in the cranial vault. Then you have um, decerebit posturing, where the arms are extended, hands are laterally rotated, and the feet again are extended out like they're pushing gas pedals. The corticate posturing to cerebral posturing, okay? And again, you have numerical values to each of these assessment findings. And I'm telling you now, National Registry is going to give you a scenario and ask you to calculate a patient's GCS. So you need to know, I didn't say memorize, you need to know these criteria and the numerical values are fixed to each. So let me ask you, all of us in the room today, we have a GCS of what? Which would be? 15. If someone is in cardiac arrest, they are dead, they have a GCS of what? Yeah, you'll see people say GCS zero, and that's impossible. The lowest score you can get is three. Three to 15. Do they put, just to confuse people, put zero on there? I'm assuming they would. No, they put zero because they don't understand GCS. No, I'm talking like on the test, but they put an extra choice of zero. They may. But that, see, that's low-hanging fruit right there. Hell, you know that ain't true, so you, you pick three, not zero. All right, assessing for disability. Look here, there are different ways to elicit pain responses here. I would be very cautious about pinching somebody on the neck like that. Mm -hmm. What's right there in your neck? Does plaque build up in some of our arteries sometimes? Mm -hmm. You get to grab it. It's far-fetched, I'm sure, but I wouldn't do that. Pinch the earlobe, I guess push on the eyebrow, do the old sternum rub. Perform your rapid full body scan. Uh, usually inspect each area to uh, visually inspect each area to ensure an accurate and thorough assessment. And performing a rapid full body scan helps identify other injuries. If someone has a significant injury, like say their femur is broken, is it possible, that, which is the longest and strongest bone in the body, right? What's the likelihood that something else is injured but the patient just doesn't know it? Okay, so that's why you're going to check their entire body out, a full body scan, okay? You will inspect or look, you will palpate or touch, and you will auscultate or listen. Look, listen, and feel from head to toe, okay? Now, obviously, there's certain places that you're, you're going to listen to the lungs. You may even listen to bowel sounds. You may listen... Uh, 
to a, what's called, a, and there's another pulse that you can take, it's called an apical pulse, A-P-I-C-A-L. An apical pulse is when you put the stethoscope right on the anterior chest and listen to the heart and take a pulse, okay? So there's certain things that you listen to, obviously, certain things that you palpate, and you look at everything. Uh, you're going to use DCAP BTLS. There's another one you need to know. So, so far we've got CANO times four. We have AVPU, right? Now we're going to learn DCAP BTLS. That's what you're looking for when you do a full body scan. D um, stands for deformities. Deformities, contusions, abrasions, punctures, or penetration, burns, tenderness, lacerations, or swelling. Deformities, contusions, abrasions, punctures or penetrations, burns, tenderness, lacerations, and swelling. Those are the things that you are checking a patient for during your rapid full body scan. Deformities, contusions, abrasions, punctures or penetrations, burns, tenderness, lacerations, or swelling. That's what you're looking for during your rapid full body scan. That's right. All right. Only a few conditions cause sudden death, airway obstruction, respiratory arrest or failure, cardiac arrest, shock, severe bleeding, all those are in the ABCs, right? Um, obviously, you need to be able to recognize problems with the ABCs and take immediate action. Um, controlling life-threatening bleeding takes priority. Uh, controlling life-threatening bleeding takes priority over airway and breathing concerns, negative. But like I told you, you will put a gloved hand on it while you secure the airway, the breathing, okay? Trust me, don't even, you get the same crap like this and it confuses folks. Airway, breathing, circulation, in that order. Every time without fail. Y'all trust me. All right, so patient care and transport. Uh, determine the priority of patient care and transport. Rapid full body scan will assist you in determining transport priority. Listen, when you, and you, when you get these patient assessment skills checkoff sheets, you'll see it. Basically, scene size up, scene safe, uh, LOC, airway breathing circulation. After you've done your primary survey, you've assessed airway breathing circulation, then you make your transport decision. Is this a critical patient or a stable patient? You'll hear terms like priority patient, okay? Um, but critical or stable, sick, not sick, so to speak. If you, once you finish your, your ABCs, you make a transport decision. And, you, and during testing, you will say, 
And once you finish circulation, you'll say, I've determined this is a priority patient. We're going to be off the scene in 10 minutes. You need to verbalize that. But in the real world, you need to actually do that. You make that determination, and if they are a, an unstable patient or priority, you are off the scene in 10 minutes. Okay? And it probably will even affect where you're going to take them to. But default to your agency's protocols. High priority patients should be treated immediately within 10 minutes and protecting the patient's spine and identifying fractured extremities are integral parts of packaging for transport. Okay. What is C-spine? Cervical spine, that's the neck, protecting the neck. Okay. All right. Thanks. Yes, sir. All right, so spend minimum time on scene with patients who have sustained significant trauma. Like I said, rapid transport. If you have, when, you go, when you're taking your EMT test, if they give you a scenario and, you know, and there's something in there that seems to be a significant injury or a significant illness, or if the person is unconscious for any reason, they are instantly priority patients and you need to be off the scene in 10 minutes so look for the answer that has rapid transport in there and that's going to be your answer okay always consider mechanism of injury the golden hour the platinum 10 what's the platinum 10 that's, the time that's right if they are priority or, cr or critical patient you are off the scene within 10 minutes what's the golden hour by the time you get the call, it, like you, you hope that's when they go down right then. When they get a call, you get the call, you have you, the 10 minutes on scene, get them all to the hospital and stabilize. They need the golden hour says that they, uh, they stand a much better chance of full recovery if they have definitive care, and that may mean an operating table, right. Definitive care within an hour of the injury, not you getting a call. No, I was talking about that's if the, I'm with you. If they go down. No, no, that's an ideal scenario, but, just, but, but understand the difference. If they lay there for 30 minutes before anybody finds them, there's only 30 minutes left in that golden hour. So it's the time of injury to definitive care. If it's 60 minutes or less, they stand a much better chance of having a positive outcome. All right, so we're going to talk about the history, patient getting the patient history, and we'll uh, then we'll stop for the night. Uh, probably I don't know how many pages into the chapter we are, but um, let me see something real quick. Yeah, we're in a good enough spot to where we can finish it up in one more class, but. Um, still would be a good good place to stop taking a patient history um, we're talking obviously significant medical history it provides details about the patient's chief complaint and an account of the signs and symptoms you want to gather as much history as possible on scene from either the patient or family friends bystanders maybe they've got uh, medic ID bracelets on, maybe there's a necklace, things of that nature. And you want to document all information that you have gathered, okay? 
You want to investigate the chief complaint? Ask a few simple and open-minded, that should be open-ended questions, okay? Don't lead people. Now, there's a time and a place for open-ended questions and close-ended questions, right? If you ask a yes-no question, what type of answer are you going to get? Does your chest hurt? Yes. You look at that as opposed to, can you explain to me how your chest feels? Then they might get into more details like, man, it's this pressure. It's like an elephant sitting on my chest. And you'll hear that a lot. Or crushing, a stabbing. You'll hear all these different adjectives um, to describe that pain. You get more information with open-ended questions, okay? Use eye contact, body position, and language. Should you ever tower over anybody? No. You want to kind of be on their level? Yeah. If they're talking, don't interrupt. Usually, if, if, they're, if there's something that you think is unstable about their condition, you got that 10-minute ticker, right? You may have to talk as you go, and, but uh, listen to them, be empathetic of the situation. Uh, you have two ears and one mouth, right? Why did the good Lord do that? Listen twice as much as you, speak. you should listen twice as much as you talk. That's right. Okay, so the pain questions, and and, and they're kind of getting ahead a little bit, but so if we're talking about pain questions, the OPQRST questions, you need to know this one too. O P Q R S T. Sometimes called the pain questions. Onset. Onset. Okay. What was going on when the problem started? What were you doing? And again, man, my chest is killing me. I was out splitting firewood. Or, man, my chest is killing me. I was asleep in the bed and I woke up feeling this. That paints two different pictures, right? Uh, P is provocation or palliation. In English, what that means does anything make the pain worse or does anything make the pain better? Provocation or palliation? Um, nothing makes it worse. Nothing makes it better. It's just the same constant. I can't get it to change. That paints a picture as opposed to, well, if I sit down and rest, the pain gets a little bit better. That tells you something different. Quality. Can you describe the pain? How does it feel? Where is the pain? Does the pain move? Which would be radiation. Does the pain radiate? Well, it started in my chest, but now it's going down my left arm and it's up in my left jaw. Maybe I'm hurting between my shoulder blades now. Severity. All right, it's very subjective, I know. Who knows what the uh, Wong-Baker scale is? W-A-N-G, Wong-Baker. That's the little smiley faces on the little dry erase board in your hospital room where you point to the face that 
It's obviously designed for kids, but it comes back to rating the severity of your pain, okay? On a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the worst pain you've ever felt in your life, how would you rate this pain? They're gonna say whatever they say. Ah, uh, four, uh, it's a nine, or it's a 10, or whatever, whatever they're gonna say. Now, and could you expect your answers to be different depending on the age of your patient too? Somebody that's elderly today, maybe like 80, what are some things that person's lived through in their life? Like depression, some world wars, and stuff like that, right? Especially if it's a male, they were raised, do you complain about something hurting? Do you complain at all? No, if you complain, somebody's probably gonna whoop that backside, right? Boys don't cry and stuff like that, right? So he might say, Man, it's like two. I'll be like, it's 18. It's 18. It's generational. Well, I'm telling you, it's very subjective, but you have to remember these things and keep them in mind. Um, but it's you, their impression of their pain, okay? And then time. How long ago did this start, right? All right, so... Um, then you want to ask them if they've taken anything for the pain. Have they done anything? And you want to make note of whatever they've taken. Yeah, I, I took three chewable aspirin or whatever the answer is, okay? All right. Y'all have an OPQRST, and I guess I skipped one, and I for interventions. What have they done? Y'all got this? All right, so now your sample history. Signs and symptoms. Trust me, that says symptoms. Signs and symptoms. What did they tell you? What did you discover on your own? Signs and symptoms. Allergies. You simply ask them, are you allergic to anything? They may tell you, yeah, I'm allergic to shellfish or I'm allergic to penicillin or, or whatever the case may be. You certainly want to note that. Medications, what are they currently taking? Let me ask you a question. Do you think chronic medical conditions, something that they deal with and take medicine for every day, is there ever any scenarios to where that will affect their vital signs? Yes. Yeah. So it could fool you, like say a trauma patient, let's say someone has hypertension, high blood pressure, and they take medicine every day for high blood pressure. What does that do to the beta properties of the heart, that the blood pressure medicine? Especially if it ends in, uh, O-L-O-L, like a tenolol or something like that. Those are what are called beta blockers. They ain't laughing out loud, okay? It's beta blockers. So what does that do to heart rate? Slows it down. So we know that if someone's injured and let's say maybe bleeding internally, you can expect a pulse rate to be elevated, right? Because it's trying to compensate for that blood loss. But if they're injured and say pulse rate is 80, that's in the normal range, correct? 
if you didn't get a good sample history and you didn't know that they have high blood pressure and take beta blockers, that is tachycardia for them, right? Because they're normally in the 40s because of the medicine. So that's why getting a good sample history will help you identify chronic situations that affect an acute situation. Does that make sense? Okay. So pertinent medical history. I'm having chest pains. Do you have any, uh, what, what type of medical history do you have? Well, I have coronary artery disease. Well, that's pertinent, right? That's something you certainly need to know. Last oral intake. Was last time you had anything to eat or drink? And then the E is events leading up to the illness or injury. Signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, pertinent past medical history, last oral intake, and events leading up to the illness or injury. That is your sample history. Okay? So if you're if it's a medical scenario or even a trauma scenario, as a part of, as a I guess a mainstay of your assessment is going to be your sample history and your pain questions, right? Sample, OPQRS, TNI. If you're asking that, those questions and gathering that information, you're going a long ways toward getting your assessment done. Okay? That ain't all of it, but a long way. Alcohol and drugs. Uh, signs and symptoms while under the influence of alcohol or drugs may be confusing, hidden, or disguised. Can an intoxicated person refuse treatment and transport? No. They're not medically competent. I said intoxicated now. I didn't say drank a beer so you can tie them up and throw them in the back of the house. No, if they're intoxicated, all right? Uh, Physical abuse or violence report all cases of suspected physical abuse.